Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Rundown. In this episode that's coming up, we're going to be talking with Lisa Phillips. And she's going to talk about how investing out of state with your first property is easier than you think and understanding new ideas and success stories about making real estate investing work for you by shifting your mindset. She's going to talk about how we're going to invest in real estate properties in minority neighborhoods, how to invest in real estate part-time, finding markets out of state, and maybe just maybe I'm going to get her to talk a little bit about her cryptocurrency and what she's doing there. So guys, you're definitely going to want to tune back into the Real Estate Rundown and check out what I've got going on here with Lisa as we talk about what's going on in her out-of-state investing portfolio and how she can help you learn the mindset that she's got. Hey guys, it's the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for joining in today. I have the great pleasure of welcoming Lisa Phillips to the show. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Hello. Good morning. I'm great. So Lisa, we know that you are investing in the real estate market and we know that you've been involved in the out-of-state real estate investments Mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, Lisa, why don't you tell us where you came from, what your real estate journey has been that's brought you to this place where you are now all over social media, you've got followers everywhere that are trying to figure out how to do what you're doing. And you brought that to our show and we're glad to hear that. But tell us how you got to where you are today in July of 2021. Oh yeah, it's such an interesting string of events that look unrelated, but it sort of add up to this one big story. Born and raised in Las Vegas, that's the Western part of the United States. Things are very expensive out there. You're not really aware of different markets that are lower than that. So you just got to start with your basis. Like you just didn't, you know, I only knew expensive, I only knew California and Arizona and Las Vegas prices. So that's sort of what I was indoctrinated with. I bought my first house out of college, like six months out of college. And this is during 2006. So like everyone got a loan. It's like 0% down. Really expensive house I should never have purchased. But right. if I knew anything, if I knew what I knew today, I wouldn't have even touched it with a 10-foot pole, right? But it's just in 2006, there was this mania and all these people from California were moving in and the house prices went from 100 to 200 to 300. So at the time it was 400,000. That was okay because it was just going to keep going up forever, right? Right? That's just what you saw. That's what, <laughs> us, right? That's what they kept telling us. So I bought right out of college, like just so excited because I always like homes were in my blood, like houses are in my blood. It just is what it is. And so as soon as I could qualify, went for it. Zero percent. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) You just got to pay a balloon payment in 10 years. Interest only loan. But they were just like, yeah, this is just what we do. It's so normal. Like, why wouldn't I know people who make less than you who buy more expensive houses? 
like, all right. right, this seems like a good idea. You know, what happened between 2006 and like 2009 was the job market was shaky and jobs were being lost. And so I finally got a job, but I had to move to another state. I had to move to Ohio. And in Ohio, I had a job there about a year and a half to two years in, lost that one and just couldn't find another job. And so I had to make the decision. I'm far away from home. The house, which in 2006 was worth a ridiculous amount of 400K, was now worth like 200. Like it completely fell in value. And I just had to make a choice, unemployed. I was in Ohio and the job market in Ohio wasn't good either. I could not find another job quickly like I had when I was in Vegas. So I had to make the choice to let it go and get into foreclosure. But that was a time where the stigma wasn't as bad because everyone was going through foreclosure in 2009. <laughs> I also remember that. Everyone was losing their jobs. So it's one thing when it's just you, you feel like, oh my God. But then it's another thing when it's everyone and jobs are being lost, you can't get another job. And I was my 20s at the time, later 20s. And my mindset was, okay, I mean, I just have to do what I have to do. The house, it's a liability. It is not an asset. It's half its value, but I'm still paying twice the mortgage. The rent that I can receive from that is 40% less than my mortgage payment. It is not a asset. It is a liability. So just purely logically, and I didn't have a job, I was like, I got to let it go. So it's just sometimes you just got to sit and look at this. And instead of letting your pride and ego move you like, oh, I can't show the world that I didn't make it. It's like, you really have to assess every year what you're working with. And so I had to let it go. And my thinking was, okay, so I can't get a mortgage for seven years. That's okay. <laughs> I will just find low cost properties and invest in those. Cause right before I had lost the job in Ohio, I had purchased like a $35,000 condo. It was like in a really nice neighborhood. Like I would say you'd call it like a B plus neighborhood. It was right outside of a big city really nice, nice neighbors. And so that's where I really learned about the concept of like, there's different markets out there. And so I let it go. And I was like, you know, once I get another job and I can just save up half my money and buy a new house every year. And so that was just sort of my thinking at the time. I just have to say the kind of person you're talking to, I also was on bought land in Colorado and was going to go out and make an earth dome home. So you're talking to someone right. who's like, you know, I don't know. I can be a little yeah. eclectic and a little out there. I think outside the box. And FYI, I still might make a corn cob home one day. Right? Right. I still have my land. I made that decision, but then I, I discovered like this new asset class of different houses and different demographics. And where I had come from in Vegas, I grew up in a lower black and Hispanic neighborhoods that was considered horrible and very crime ridden. But living there, I was like, you guys really have bias and stereotypes because it's not that bad. There are neighborhoods and streets that are, but that doesn't mean every area in the entire zip code is bad. And right. so when I started looking for new houses, I remember going to like real estate forums and, you know, like there is a demographic shift. Like most of the people giving the forums are affluent. They are white. They're in a different socioeconomic bracket. And so when I would talk to them about these houses, they just couldn't understand that the neighborhoods that I was looking at, that mirror mind, were actually okay and safe. They're like, it cannot work. It can't work at all because it didn't work for me. Right? right. And there was just like a realization like, listen, I grew up in this. I know this. They don't. And the same things that people thought about nanny neighborhoods that were, they were completely wrong about is happening here. So I really had to go away from that and just sort of forge my own thing. I heard what they said, but it was really easy to like vet that. So part of the strategy 
And, you know, I tell you on my platform, most of the people who follow me are black investors or black professionals who want to be investors. Because when I talk about this, a lot of them share my same story. So they're like, yeah, I grew up like this too. Not that big a deal. Now there are some streets you don't go, but not all of them are terrible crime ridden. So that's definitely like 85% of my audience because we understand that story and we live that story. And it's to your advantage if you can go back to a similar neighborhood that's not where you grew up, but you understand the culture of the people and you have an understanding of where they're coming from and also respect from where they're coming from because you were just there 20 years ago, right? Before college, before the white collar job, that is where we were. It can be actually a very beautiful thing, right? So we sort of forged this path, like going into it and just knowing like, look, not, you know, you have to be able to be discerning and look underneath the surface. So I find that spiritually, it's a really wonderful thing we're doing because a lot of my investors just love the fact that we can go to a neighborhoods where people look like us and we're investing, but we're not gentrifying. Whereas I do have people outside of that demographic. As soon as they see me, they're like, what, can I flip? I was like, you really want poor people to not have places to stay? You know, and we do long-term affordable housing. That's a completely different mindset. In our minds, we're here to serve the people. In their minds, they're just trying to get money and move them out. And it's a completely different energy. I'm not saying anything's wrong with flipping, but we do target lower income areas where we already know the incomes are depressed. So let's talk about that. I mean, you know, because a lot of people take the concept of low income housing and they put that quote unquote responsibility on the government, which we all know the government can't do anything right. And we don't even need to be affiliated to agree on that. But when you look at that and you go, okay, wait a minute, power to the people, we are Mm -hmm. going to change Mm -hmm. this ourselves and we are going to make affordable housing affordable. Yes. What is it that you do to do that? How is it that you make affordable housing affordable? Is it that you actually put your tenant and your neighborhood before profits? Or is it that you come in and you bring scale to it? How is it that you do that? Both. You put both your profits and tenants together and it is very possible and you do scale, right? So going into these neighborhoods, there's levels to this, right? And I think a lot of what I do versus other people don't is just talk about nuance. There's one thing for me to go into a distressed area, take a house and do the bare minimum to get it livable, right? And there's another reason to go into the bare minimum to get it livable, but add a few touches and upgrades and be very responsive up to your tenants and making sure that like something's broke, you fix it, right? You're not going to scale too high because we are have to be discerning investors, right? right. So yeah, the granite countertops and Carrera marble bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but there are levels, right? Because there are people who, you know, before my group, we have a very sort of like ethic of like, what would you do for yourself if you were in the circumstances, mm-hmm. right? So very strong relation to that. I mean, I hear stories and I was like, I would just not treat my tenants that way. (laughs) I took the door off the oven and I did this because they're, you know, and I'm just like, wow, no, I don't live that way. But so there's a difference in nuance between bare minimum and getting paid. Right. But then there's also doing the minimum, but also strategically and with nuance doing upgrades to make it nice and livable, you know, so a different things that it's very interesting. And maybe it's like my feminine energy that I brought to this, but you know, homes are, you know, based around, you know, like putting colors instead of all white, like putting a nice tan color on the walls, right? Like you would say that that's, it's not revolutionary, but a lot of people were just like, you just do the minimum, have the white, have this and done, right? And it's like, instead of getting hardwood floors, but we can afford like luxury vinyl tile or laminate flooring, that isn't very expensive. Maybe you, you pay anywhere from 800 to 2000, depending on the square footage. 
but mm-hmm. it gives it a nice upgraded look to what would be an older home. Right. And so it's a little thing like that. So it's a little bit of it's money that you're paying above the bare minimum, but it's just strategically spending an extra anywhere from one to three thousand dollars to like upgrade it. So it is more modern and it's nice. Right. But that's not enough in the long run to break your bank. But it is a conscious choice you're making to provide a house that's a little bit more above bare minimum. So me and my investors really survive in the nuance and discernment stage. And I think that's why we've been pretty successful. It's not all or oh, it's definitely a balance and being wise with your money, but also putting a little extra in. So then your goal is to come in, pick off the distressed properties in the neighborhood, put them back into circulation in the neighborhood, bring the neighborhood up a notch because it now doesn't have vacancy. It doesn't have squatters in homes. It doesn't have natural. It's very natural upgrading. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you've eliminated the places where people of ill repute will hang out in any neighborhood, regardless of the color, because you've now put paying tenants in there who Mm -hmm. are looking at their own neighborhood going, we like being here. I mean, you've just done what used to be intuitive to people, right? That people have looked at it and said, well, the government should do that. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not my responsibility. Basically, what I hear you saying, Lisa, is that you guys have accepted social responsibility for your neighborhood. Definitely. And that's why the gentrification. So I have a book, Investing in Rental Properties, and I had to put like a forward, like we're not for gentrification. So if you want to go where people are already, and because it is about long-term housing, we do have conversations where actually economically, it's to our benefit for reliable, stable tenants to not raise our rates just because we can, because the cost of ownership, depending on how you fix it up, like your mortgage goes down over time, <laughs> right? Your taxes might go up and maybe there's maintenance, but that really depends on how you fix it up in the beginning and if you delayed or not. But for the most part, we pretty much are not into raising the rents just because we can, because we're understanding that the demographic we're working with are working class people. They do have jobs. They are solid but a $50 rent increase to them can be enough for them to move. And then we have turnover costs and then we have very old people. So it's really is about, we talk very openly, like, no, we don't just raise our rents. There's a reason you buy a property with like a tenant in it and it's below market by two, $300. And they're like, there's a reason for that. All right. Because turnover costs money and eats your profit. Getting new tenants that are variable versus a long-term one that pays on time every single month. Yeah, I kept it lower because I save more in the long run between the turnover costs every one to two years, right? And so it's having that mindset. And it's funny because a lot of people fail to realize that that is economically more sound than raising the rents, kicking the tenant out every year, cleaning the carpets every year. I mean, I don't know anybody that is able to use the security deposit to cover all that needs to be fixed, right? Never, never. There's always a $500 security deposit and a thousand dollars worth of fixes, right? Then you're More than out, that. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? but, but then you're also looking at the fact that you now have two weeks to a month of vacancy, mm-hmm. right? You've got advertising costs. Mm-hmm. You've got all these things. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've really worked with my asset managers on is that we're not property managers. We don't go into the thought process of, well, we're here to manage the property. We look at it from an asset. And that means that we look at it, we go, yes, we could raise the rents. We could have high turnover. We could have a lot of these other things happening. Where does the house get beat up? It gets beat up when the people move in and out. You're lugging mm-hmm. a couch down two flights of stairs. You're doing this, you're doing that. And if you're not doing those things and you're not getting the rent appreciation, 
maybe your offset is the same. Maybe your NOI is unaffected because you're able to do that. And then you're able to provide a quality of community yeah. that a lot of people miss. Longtime tenants. And you're correct on every single aspect. That's all I can say. Yeah, you have to be discerning about it. But one thing we say is, listen, if I have a tenant and I have these tenants, they pay on time every single month. All right. I'm not raising the rents on them. So for me, as far as stability in my business, that's as stable as you can get a 20 year person paying you every month, you know, for 20 years on time regularly. And they're the kind of person who keeps my house up. They alert me when things go on. Right. And if they're not this good, of course, you're going to shuffle them out and not feel too bad. But when you get a good one, no, we're not raising the rents on you. Like it would really take a lot for me to do that. And I do get retirees and working class people because those are the demographic I touch. And so they're going to be working the rest of their lives. They're going to have the funding for the rest of their lives. And, you know, I'm working on one. It's been 2013 to today, eight years on time payments. Yeah. Right. And you know, there's a lot to be said. That's amazing. That is stability in your business versus me chasing profits and turnover every year and a half. And so let me turn this on its ear a little bit. And let me ask you about COVID and how your collections were during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Well, it's very funny because you really start to see how class really plays into this because, you know, I sort of target working class, lower class neighborhoods, and some of those have different safety nets that other people don't. One of them was that for working class people, they generally, all of our tenants were continuing to work or they got unemployment, right? They were caught up by these different nets that the working class had, or they were subsidized and they continue to be subsidized with, even if they didn't, you know, the housing did certain things where if they didn't pay, they were going to pay it all back in full. So it was very interesting that when you target the people on the bottom socioeconomic ladder, there's a resiliency because of all the different items that are there to protect them. And it was funny. So then that was my experience. But then I went to my group. I have about 12,000 in my Facebook group who sort of follow this. And I asked them, how are you guys doing? And I had about 50, 60 responses. And they were like, really, it was like maybe two out of 10 didn't have paying tenants, but then the tenants were a problem. Everyone was like, but she was a problem beforehand. Okay. (laughs) Or eight. So it was like, so two out of 10 wasn't paying, but then it was like, we were going to evict them anyways, because it was always so variable, but eight out of 10 was either they still worked, they still had subsidized housing or they got unemployment or, you know, they just knew all the community resources. So I remember someone was talking about everybody in the group house came together and they were like free food here, the rent assistance here. They knew every single one. So it was very interesting how that demographic was. They had some ups and downs and they had some bumps, but they also had safety nets. Well, the other thing too, that I guess I was thinking about was if I was a tenant, right? Mm -hmm. And I was in there and I knew that market rent was maybe a thousand bucks. And I knew that maybe I was paying 800 and I knew that I had a relationship (laughs) with you, right? Mm -hmm. I think I would be one of those tenants to pick up my phone and go, hey, Lisa, listen, you're not going to believe this, but I got COVID. I got two weeks without pay. I got this. I got that. I think I would be communicating with you because it would matter. Whereas if I was in a complex where, you know, I was market rent and nobody cared and I, I never got a hold of landlord and I knew that it, mm. I, I was a number, I didn't right. matter to the people that own my property. Right. I think I would be like, you guys will figure it out with or without me. Right. Yeah. And I know that we experienced that in our communities as well. And we had our property managers went out into the community and they, and we set up a table outside their door. Very good. (laughs) And we got their information because, you know, sometimes community resources aren't that easy to find. Right. But once you 
found them once, you bookmark them on this fancy little thing called the Google bar, right? And then you just go back to them. And so we sat down with everybody and we made sure that they had access to all of those resources because they were communicating with us, right? Because there was a relationship there. I was going to say it. It's not just about the house. It's not just about the asset. When you include relationships and if you want to be even more powerful, you include community, you get buy-in and it's both and it's mutual. And I think that is something that can be really missed where it's all just about the asset and the investment, but in rental properties and multifamilies, the community and relationship, and even if you just do relationship without the community, you're still doing good. You add the community, meaning we're going to sit here and provide resources to all of you guys. Make sure you guys all see that we're trying to help. Make sure you understand we're in this together. That can withstand you through so much turmoil because once you have buy-in and commitment that we're all on the same page and doing this together, not just me trying to get money from you, it is the most powerful thing in the world. And you know, a lot of the investing we do reflects that relationship and community aspect because it does pay for itself. And I, I just didn't see as many issues. As you said, the people who know they're undervalued, they know that they were in a house that's a little bit nicer than the other houses for the same neighborhood. You know what I mean? They understand where they're at because the value we put into it, they can see it. And that buy-in helps. They also felt the responsibility to you, right? Because Mm -hmm. you showed them their value, right? They're not just a number. They're not just 23 Jump Street. They are Tom and Sarah in this house. And they've been there for eight years, like you talked about. And the unfortunate thing is, so often we make that an issue of color, right? That this is our neighborhood or that's their neighborhood. When the reality is it's a human issue. It is a factor that needs to happen in the human element that says, hey, look, I'm a white guy from Idaho. Lisa, you're in Ohio right now, but we are a community of investors. We are a community of landlords and we can do the right thing. We can do the right thing in any Mm -hmm. neighborhood because we choose to. Yes. Because we want to be responsible to our fellow man. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to have the yahoos, right? They're going to be white, brown, green, yellow, orange. You're going to have yo-yos that don't pay, that are going to game the system, that are not going to take care of it. And yet you still have the opportunity to be the landlord or the investor that says, I'm still going to believe in humanity, right? That's it. And I'm going to tell you, this has been my experience. And, you know, I built this platform. And so it's not just me now. It's everyone else who followed this and got the same result. If it's just about money, you're here. You make about money and relationships, you're here. You make about money, relationships and community, you're off the charts. Yep. And And that's the part no one talks about. That extra Let's talk about it. Let's do it. (laughs) Really, Lisa, isn't that just because if you think about it, if it's about money, I want to call it intestinal fortitude, but you don't have the spirit inside of you that cares about anything but money. So when that's all you're out for, all you see is the Ferrari and the big yacht and all this stuff. You don't see the people behind it. When you start to see the depth and the people behind life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. your life starts to take on color, right? It starts to have some muted grays in it Mm -hmm. and maybe some mauve and some other colors. But when you go all in and you say, hey, I'm here for the experience. I got one life going around this planet and I have the opportunity to be effective. Mm-hmm. Yes. And someone's like Teresa, right? I'm not, I'm just not going to be that good of a person, but I can make a difference. And then all of a sudden you go to high definition, right? And all of a sudden you are technicolored because of the way you choose to live. And that comes from inside. Core values, the energy you put into that house 
Exactly. You don't understand it and you may not believe it, but everyone, when they walk in, can feel the energy of what you put in there. But it's also they can tell if you did bare minimum. Yep. They can tell if you tried a little extra hard. And that energy is what they read, regardless of what you say. And you're going to get it back. Right. 100%. And of course, we still and don't get me wrong. Like if you guys think I'm bleeding heart, like, <laughs> no, we're so profitable. Yeah. But what you did is you gave yourself the best abundance of people who can recognize the work you put into it. So, you know, when we put houses on the market because of those upgrades we did, that little extra money, right? We get the best of the best for that demographic. We get the people with the slightly higher end job for that working class neighborhood. We get the people who like nicer things for that paycheck and want to sort of put into it. But it's funny because you can't convince people that the energy you put into it gets read immediately by everyone who walks in. But I tell you and I tell my investors, what you put in, you're going to get out. You're, they're going to match it, right? And well, that's also part of spirit and community and just right. things that are stronger than money, right? Because money is great. That's why we're here. Sure. But I have found when your core values align with something a little bit bigger than that, there's a reason we talk about mission statements, right? right. Because when you have them, it's not just about you. You're building something bigger and better. And, well, and, and the reality it is to pay for itself and it pays yeah. for itself. But the reality is when you've got it just a little bit nicer and you're, you're right there on the market, mm-hmm. now you're getting the guy that's working at the plant. That's the shift supervisor, not exactly. the for 13 years and he still can't figure out why he's not gotten a raise. Right. And mm-hmm. Cause you've got several people that want to rent your place. Exactly. Right? That is what so, you attract. So you're able to pick and you're able to go, man, this dude don't feel right. I checked his references because I can. He's not the only guy that's come around to look at this place in 30 days because it's absolutely, you know, bare bones. And maybe the toilet should have been replaced about a century ago. And, exactly. You know, Little things marble, like you that. Through the house for an hour and a half because it's so torn up and everything. But when you do those kinds of things, then you have a better clientele that is mm-hmm. able to show you the appreciation by being the better clientele. Pure attraction. So what you put in, you're going to attract right to I was going to say the same thing. I was gonna, your pictures are going to attract a certain people. Your price point's going to attract a certain people. How you present your yard. You don't have to spend a lot of money for a like, nice landscape, right? But it's extra effort to do it. All of that is going to attract the people who can appreciate it. And you're going to have 10 of those people apply within 30. It's Houses are not on the market for longer than six weeks. It just is what it is, right? Because of that extra work, right. um, discerning work. And yeah, they come right in. And now you have 10 people where it's like, you're going to get the gamut. You're going to get people who are lower to higher. And so you can make your decision based off that, but you're going to get a wider variety. You sort of, you're naturally elevating the neighborhood. I saw like, and this is what I saw over the years. Like you're just, you didn't do it necessarily specifically, but because of your actions, energy and investment, you naturally shifted the people who are here and you can stabilize an entire neighborhood with one nice family right. who keeps their yard up and then everyone else sees them keep their yard up. So they keep their yard up. Right. right. It's so subtle, but I've seen it. And that's true. And I'm sensitive to that as well. I've, you know, I've been in my hometown for 40 years, so mm-hmm. I've made every dollar I've ever made out of my community, but I can honestly look at it and say, I've made a better community out of making my money. Wow. Right. Exactly. And there's nothing better that says that, Hey, not, I built that shiny glass tower but that I built these things and I built affordable housing. And do you guys do things like we look at things and we go, Hey, listen, we can put in like the nicer countertops. Like we can, we always justify that we can put in granite countertops you can. For 40 bucks a square foot versus $5 a square foot for laminate, but one hot pan 
doesn't toast a whole kitchen, right? And we're able to justify where we can put those kinds of things in what other people call entry level, mm -hmm. which helps our occupancy tremendously, but it also helps our maintenance. It absolutely does wonders because now mm -hmm. you're not seeing laminate come up or you're not seeing hot pans destroy stuff or you're not see you didn't put in the cheapest cabinet. So your cabinet guys, your maintenance guys in there every week trying to fix a drawer or put a knob back on. Is that kind of some of the same things that you guys are doing as well when you talk about adding that little bit extra? Yeah. And so we're on the lower price scale, right? So we're not talking counter granite, but we will take the laminate, make sure it's fixed up and shored up and maybe put epoxy. So that's common in the group. Hey, you guys know anyone who does epoxy countertops? Okay. Great, 200 to 400 bucks to get that done for you. And you know, with the epoxy that offers a nice little resin that mm -hmm. protects it or this type of countertop or maybe even contact paper, right? So there's definitely a level we're not as high as you, but like with both it's discernment, right? Like you're not gonna give them everything for the price point they're at because it just doesn't make profitable sense for what you can get out of it. Cause you know, you sort of get to a point and you're stuck there, but being creative about ways to bring more value and a posh modern look is very much part of it. So for instance, so a lot of these houses can be very old. And one of the things that I do this for my own house, let alone the rental properties, one of the things we will do is actually pay either you can do it yourself or pay an electrician and it'll be anywhere from four to $600 to change all of the outlets to a modern, nice look, right? So they were older from 1960 and they're blackened and they're, you know, a little octagon and you literally change every, you know, the little thin switch that you go and then you switch all of them to the nice little flat switches and, and dimmers and like the new ones with USB cords. And you paid $600 for that. But what it did was when you walked inside this old home, it did it with the paint job, the floor job, and that it gave it a modern look. It didn't feel old. It didn't feel like a 1925 home anymore. It felt like a modernized one. You did not necessarily spend a lot of money to do that, but it gave it a certain look and passion. You know, maybe you put some peel and stick backsplash, right? So in a high end area, it's like real tile, right? Right. But at ours, it's like, no, we can do pill and stick or even contact paper, like in the backsplash. And you gave it a little bit of a modern edge and touch mm -hmm. that is appreciated. And it's really right. relatively easy to fix, re put it on again, but they appreciate those extra little. And I actually think this is very minimal, these costs, because in the long run, how much money you make, I think it's so little, but it's very strategic for being a low income or working class demographic, but giving them a little bit more but feel and look like they're living like a really nice life that wants them to stay in your property. I love what you're doing because I think that too many people, and I got to throw myself on that pile too sometimes, too many people look at it and go, well, that's the government's job. You know, mm. they're supposed to take care of that. You know, mm. they'll deal with the low income, but we know that part of the reason we have the tax problems that we have today, problem we have with the income disparity comes from the way that we're taxed and the way that things happen there. And without getting into the politics of it all, we yes, know are, that there is so right much that mm -hmm. we can do. And you're yes. reminding me constantly with this, that I should be doing more yeah. to be a part of my own community and to be the solution that I expect. Yes. Oh, you are reading everything I'm putting out there. And for me, because I do target minority neighborhoods and that minorities are the, mostly the people who work with me, it's actually like a great sense of, you know, we should have been doing this the whole time because sometimes people can be wired to look to the government to a solution. It's literally programming, social conditioning and wiring. You know, and what I love about it is that we're like, I am wiring people like, no, this is us. Not only can we actually afford these properties, 
because they are undervalued because of a lot of reason, you know, all about mortgage and appraisal discriminate. We know all about why the value is lower, but with all of that, we can afford it. And not just that we really do show folks that not only can we line our own pockets with passive income in assets, you know, whereas before we're one generation removed from not having anything, not only can we do that, but it's like, I guess I'm trying to say that, but we also are the solution, just one individual investor at the time, but we are committed and have the same sort of core values and mission statements. We're not for gentrification. We're specifically going into depressed neighborhoods, understanding that they can't just make more money and 50 to $100 and rent raise does matter to them. And so just sort of having that core values and missions, like we really are the solution to the problem the whole time. Right. But, you know, it's just the Internet made it easy to talk to different people and get all these insights and data points so you can sort of feel more confident moving on your own. Right. So I I love the fact that we are the solution and that's what you're seeing it. We are the solution and we've always been the solution. And so my mission is to get as many of us as possible to go in these communities and just fix them up. But with this core statement of we offer long term affordable housing, we don't necessarily raise the rents just because we can because it's not necessarily economically profitable. And, you know, you put into the house what you want to get out. So we have like a few core mission or values of how we sort of conduct ourselves and what our mindset is, but it's always been us. I just want this to get bigger and bigger because then you have a solution to the problem and it's in our hands, not the government hands. And I am apolitical. I don't like the government at all. So just so you know who you're talking about, I'm not either side. I buy all of it, okay? Because I see how it's used for control in many ways. So get rid of them and then put it in our hands one house at a time. So if I have 12,000 investors and they each have five houses, that's a huge impact, okay? So, you know, my goal is to get 100,000 investors. Let's do this. But I really do, the reason... I do stress the core values of we're not for gentrifying. It is long-term. We're very being very discerning about our upgrades though. So yeah. I always have to caveat that because oh. some people can only see flip. They cannot see affordability. They can't like, it's literally impossible for them to see like the people in these neighborhoods as someone deserving of a nice home. They're like, nah, they need to just well, make more thing- money. You need to make more money and leave, you know, versus West. We're like, no, we completely understand you work. This is your place. And we want to provide for you. You provide for me and have like this mutually beneficial. Have you ever taken someone that's just looking at it from a flip standpoint and (laughs) I get them off the phone, (laughs) No, but run the calculation and said, okay, Mm -hmm. let's just say you flip this house and you make 50 grand. Okay. You walk home with 30 of that by the time you get done being taxed. What if you could make the same amount of money because you received passive income, you received depreciation that you wouldn't normally get, you received this, you received that. Instead of just putting that in your pocket as profit today to eat tomorrow, because you have to go kill something tomorrow to eat because you don't have any long-term income. Instead of doing that, you did this for four years. This is what your portfolio would like. Have you ever sat down and done that? Because I'm kind of a numbers guy. So I'm already doing that in my head going, man, I think I can make that. A little bit because some of these flips aren't that profitable. <laughs> like, <laughs> I could have made more. You know what I mean? Because right. sometimes they come out even because it is that part of the, the speculative nature. I think we can get this in the market after the resale value. If you want but exercise, then- go to Jazzercise, man. Go to the gym. Don't go flipping houses because it's too much work. You know, it's and then you open the wall up. And now all of a sudden you got this problem and you got mold here and you didn't realize that the part of the foundation over there was cracked. And so the appraiser won't give that. Now you got to fix that and all this stuff. And I look at it, I go, man, what is the easiest way to turn this into cash flow? Yes. 
because that's what you're really looking for. You're looking for that fact that after 25 of these or 50 of these, if you did 50 flips, you still got to go do 51 because you have nothing left. Right. Whereas if you did 50 it. rental properties, you're good. Shoot, oh, at you 10, do, make at 10 you're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even need 50. You need 10. And so, no. So I have like a blog post about that. Like, yeah, long-term, like for me, I can't, and you know, it depends on like where you're from and your value system, but I'm here for the long haul. And you know, you, like you go on 10 plus years, you have the same house. It's still in great condition. You still got paying tenants. They pay on time every month. It has been no problem, no issues, except slight maintenance. You're like, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. It really is extremely easy. And, you know, hopefully another 20 more years, right? Like of this continuing. Let's switch gears real quick as we wind down, because I gave everybody the teaser that I wanted to talk with you a little bit about crypto too. But so you have this vision of the harsh, real reality of what to do to create affordable housing without gentrification. And then Mm -hmm. you flip the switch and you go to this other world where you're dealing with cryptocurrency, which Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really isn't tangible like our dollars are. How do you do that? And what do you see in crypto that entices you to that and makes you want that? Sometimes it's just obvious that digital is better, right? So going to Blockbuster versus streaming, right? Like, and I can download it on my tablet. So it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is better. I can move it in minutes. I can do this and it appreciates in value. You can bet and understand what currencies you're doing it in. So just from a technological standpoint, it was global, it's decentralized it's just a better product. So it's Netflix to Blockbuster. So like, even if you don't believe in it, you, I mean, like you can at least understand technologically, it is the best and it is supreme. So that sort of made me go, okay, well, let's see how far this goes. And I heard about in 2014, when it was like $172 for Bitcoin, I was like, I don't know about this, but I let it go. And then in 2017, I just didn't think the community can get it through. But in 2017, all of a sudden people were on crypto. I was like, okay. And that for me was like, the community has what it takes to keep pushing this forward. So you get into it. So it's a better asset. And quite frankly, I want it to do better because honestly, now that I'm so in the crypto world, I try to move money from one thing to another. I have to go through PayPal and get it withdrawn. And then I got to pay fees. It takes forever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well, I go from crypto exchange to exchange because maybe I have money here and I want to buy something that's over here. It takes anywhere from one minute to 20 minutes. It's there. It's on my pocket. It's in my phone. It's just a better technology. So the funny thing is, but because of my rental property, because rental property investing, and if you do it right, it gives you a lot of wealth strategies. And I've read a lot of books on wealth strategies as well. I have a different mind when I look at crypto that if you're not a real estate investor, you might not see. And I look at, you know, long-term, I look at trends and cycles. I look at, oh, wow, you know, the fact that it goes up and down is the same way a neighborhood might be completely, the downtown might be completely drug and crime-ridden. But then, you know, after 80 years, they were gentrify it and then it goes back up. Right. And so it's funny because some of the crypto I look at in the cycle, like, oh, yeah, it's on the low point, but it's low. It's easy to do this. And if this and this and this happens, it'll come right up. So it's funny that you can see parallels in the cycles. I added passive income to it. So I went really heavy in looking on how to make residual monthly income. And FYI, I got to tell you, if I sold one of my properties and I put it in crypto, at six or 10%, and depending if there's details I don't want to go into, depending on which crypto and how much money you can get, 
safely with relatively low risk, you would make just as much, maybe a hundred dollars less per month in cash flow, but you don't have a house that you have to maintain. I'm telling a lot of real estate investors, the reason I'm straddling both is that it is lucrative. It is more lucrative and less overhead to have cryptos and make the same passive income. I'm talking two, three, four hundred dollars a month without any tenant calls or any HVAC <laughs> maintenance or turnover costs. Right. And it's, I don't know if it's hard for real estate investors to understand it. And it's just, I've been in the crypto world for four years and I saw the huge returns. Yep. And then I've been in my real estate world, but in four years, my returns on crypto equal my 10 years in real estate, right? right? Because of the exponential growth and how we're still early adopters. And it's a funny place to be having yeah. like a whole platform of real estate, but you're like, guys, I really want you to consider crypto because when it comes to how much money and equity appreciation, passive income, you can still do really, really well. That's true. And it, they are similar. You know, what's funny that I think a lot of people fail to realize is that the money in your wallet isn't really money. It's just paper that we've assigned a value to. Mm -hmm. And when people look at cryptocurrency, what they fail to realize is that there's an underlying technology there that mm -hmm. actually does something, right? Right. So mm -hmm. when you look at Ethereum, it actually does something. Polkadot does something. Solaro does something. Carbono does something. Cardano. There's all these things that it actually does, which your money actually doesn't because it's backed by a government that, well, as we can agree, Lisa, printing, do anything. money like crazy. Oh, well, they do, they do corruption really well. Well, they've got that nailed. But yeah. The last 20 years, I'm like, guys, we are, we're yeah. at third world country levels when it comes to corruption at this point. Yeah. Like, yeah. Stop being so high and mighty about us. Yeah. You know? So I can see where people get confused. And it's funny to me because I look at it as a hard asset. Microsoft doesn't own anything. Microsoft, until they started making the surface, they didn't make anything. They right. own technology and everybody was okay with that. Netflix mm -hmm. owns the rights to things. Just as you mentioned, they don't own anything. They don't have, you know, a Netflix machine that comes to your house and drops off the video. They got away from that. They don't even own the discs anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They got away from that. But, but yet there's still value in what Netflix is because of the technology. And yet when people come to crypto, they go, I don't get it. I can't wrap my head around it. For me, it's pretty easy. So I'm glad to see that you do that. And then you combine it. I love the analogy you make between crypto and real estate and how those are similar. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, that kind of wraps up our time, man. I truly appreciate you coming on the real estate rundown and dropping some knowledge on us, guys. This has been great. A super, super appreciative of you. And Lisa, before we get off the last of this podcast here, where can people find you in the great wide world? Good. Okay. You can go to my website, affordablerealestateinvestments.com. If you put in this Google search, like Lisa Phillips and affordable real estate, like I'll come right up. I sort of cornered the market on that. And from there, you can go see my YouTube channels. If you just want to hear like, you know, just three videos I have on the strategy what's going on. But also there, if you're interested in working together, maybe you've never invested long distance, maybe you've invested in lower price neighborhoods. I offer strategy sessions that you can sign up for and, we, and I'll just assess where you are and what it would look like for you to get started on this. Also, if you're into cryptocurrency, I'm trying to get as many six-figure cryptocurrency investors out there. I'm a six-figure cryptocurrency investor and it was like 200 bucks a month. So I actually have a series of workshops where I like literally go through this. And by the end of it, you will be pretty much an expert. My people go on to help other people in crypto, which is great because then they get their family members on and then they get their family members on and I'm creating this ripple. 
So you can also do that as well. And the last thing I have a book, Investing in Rental Properties for a Beginner. You can get that from the book as well. That is a bestseller I was really proud of. That is up there on Amazon. I think it's still a bestseller since launch in 2018, just because people appreciate, like I'm pretty straightforward and blunt. I don't know if you noticed. So they, they just get the value. They understand <laughs> yeah. who I'm talking about and they can just get it and go. And that's sort of the feedback I get. And last thing, I just started a new course is a five-week program. I start in two weeks called ancestral alchemy. So it's really geared towards the community where I say we're reclaiming our land and our wealth back. And so it's like a five-week boot camp where we go over finding markets that other people aren't talking about because there's so many markets no one else is talking about. How to start vetting houses, how to manage your real estate agents, contractors, especially if you're long distance. So that starts August 10th. It's for five weeks. But the alchemy part is that I'm a true believer and my life really reflects the the power of spirit and energy and energetics and manifesting. So before each of the group live session, we will do like a law of attraction exercise, group visualization, affirmations, all those other things to get our energy and our, you know, like, what do we actually want every single and hold it for the group in addition to like welcoming and honoring our ancestors to come in because I say reclaiming our wealth is part of it for this new one. Because a lot of our ancestors did a lot of work in this country and they were never paid. So I call it reclaiming what they did and us going into these communities and doing the work because we can now, we can get what they could not, right? And so it's our responsibility to like, once we're aware to like, just do the work and get it done. So. Well, thank you, Lisa, again, for being with us today. And thank you guys for tuning into the Real Estate Rundown. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Real Estate Rundown on Podchaser, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts so that you get automatic updates like this one and catch people like Lisa on our show. You'll find us on Instagram and YouTube, guys. Leave a review. I love to hear your feedback. Thanks again. Look for all of Lisa's contact information in the chat below. Thanks, guys. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.